Good morning. All right, great to be with you guys this morning. I didn't know what Sam was going to say about Alpha. So last night, I actually, I sat down and I started making my Alpha list for the fall. And I want to encourage you to do that. You know, Alpha is designed, and they tell you this, it is designed to fail without prayer. And, uh, and it will fail if you don't invite anybody to come to it. And so please, as he said, be praying for Alpha. Only the Holy Spirit can change somebody and open up the realities of Christ to anyone, me, you, anybody. He is the one who speaks. And then invite someone. It is an awesome and amazing experience. It's a great thing that we've created for people who do not believe in Jesus. That's who Alpha is for. And it just lets them go on a journey. And, uh, you know, as he said, we, we see people come to faith in Jesus at Alpha. We see people come to faith who are coming through Alpha. They come to faith in Jesus, like in conversations outside of Alpha. We see people going, man, I, I, I don't even know why I come to church, but they start to come to church and they're like, you know, there's something here. This is a place of peace, which is wonderful and it's beautiful. It's, it's how I experience it. And, and then they, they come to faith and some don't, but it's a wonderful opportunity for you guys to invite people into a journey, into a conversation where they can feel safe and they can explore the, the, the truth claims of the Christian faith uh, in an environment in which we're not trying to make a sale. We're trying to make a friend. So please keep that in mind and take advantage of that. Like I want to put it on you. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and even if you don't, is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the purpose statement of our church. So we're giving you a great opportunity to do that. Get your phone out later today and make your list, man, and start playing. I've got four people on it, one I've invited four times. He's never come, but maybe he will. And if he does, here's what I know. He's going to love it. It's fun. It's enjoyable. So there you go, unsolicited. All right, well, happy Father's Day. Today, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. But if you were with us last week, here's what you know. We're halfway through. Like, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that's significant for a couple of reasons. One, we all like to accomplish things, you know, like some of you like get up at four o'clock in the morning. How many of you like get up like super early and before anybody else in the house is up, you've been to the gym, you've taken a shower, you've spent time with Jesus, you've answered all your emails and you feel kind of superior. Just, it's okay. All right. The rest of us get up at like 637-ish, you know, and here's what you need to know. Uh, we don't care. You know, we just, we're not impressed. And when you go to bed at nine, we're still going to be up getting stuff done. So just, just it balances out, man. We just do it at a different time of day. But we're halfway through, so it feels good. Check the box, be excited, but it's significant for, well, a far more significant reason as well, because it represents a shift in topics. As Will talked about last week, and as we've been talking about for eight weeks leading up to today, what has Mark's topic been? Because he's been drilling it like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight chapters, every chapter, same message. Jesus is God. We got to the end of chapter eight last week, and Jesus says to his disciples, all right, so who do people say that I am? And they're giving him their answers, you know. And he's like, yeah, but guys, we, we got eight chapters of life together, <laughs> We got all this stuff that you have personally witnessed. We have been doing 24-7 life together. Like, I've been pouring into you guys. You've heard all the teachings. You've seen all the miracles. Like, everything. The whole shooting match. Drum roll moment. Who do you say that I am? You know, like, you're wondering, is Jesus nervous? You know, like, are they going to get it right? And he's like... And Peter, for the group, says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. In other words, Jesus, you are God. And immediately, Jesus shifts topics. He says, you're right now. Let's talk about my mission. 
And let me give you my mission in a nutshell. Verse 31 from chapter 8. It says, and Jesus began, hear that? Because we got eight chapters coming. So Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, and I'm going to stop here in a second, must, the next word is the key, suffer. If you are a 4 a.m. person, you're frustrated right now. I'm so sorry. You felt like we were making time. I'm going to get back to it, I promise. But I, I think that's worth pausing on. Jesus is God. He's God. He's God. He's God. Chapter 5, he's God. He's God. He's God. He's God. He's a God who has suffered. Do you ever think about that? Like when you come to Jesus, you're coming to a God who's not cold, he's not distant, he's not detached from the human experience. He's not sitting somewhere on a lofty throne of comfort and ease, not having any clue what it's like to be you. But instead, he is a God who left all of that through a supernatural conception, entered into this humanity as one of us. And think about his experience. Jesus chooses as God to be born as a first century Jewish slave of the Roman Empire and a Galilean Jew at that. And why do I throw that in there? Because even amongst the Jews, if you were from Galilee, it's kind of like, you know, the Judean Jews were like, yeah, we're related, but don't tell anyone. You know, like you're sort of like, you're not us. You get the idea, but just think of all of the suffering in that. Jesus suffered poverty and everything that that involves. Jesus had to work, man. Jesus suffered oppression. He knew what it was like to suffer racism as a Jew. Jesus is a guy who was born of a virgin. Enter into that for a second. How many people do you think in that village believed that story? I'm going to go with no one. I mean, not even Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, the mother of Jesus, believed it. It took an angelic visitation to convince him that this story that she had concocted to explain her pregnancy was actually true. And that's what it would take, isn't it? He'd like, God, you know what? If that's actually true, you're going to actually have to show up. Like uh, somebody's going to need to come from heaven to explain this to me. Because outside of that, this does not make any sense. So, so Mary is the mother of the Messiah. She's a Galilean Jew. She is a peasant. Remember the story of Philip? He comes to faith in Jesus. He goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says, I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, great. Who is he? And he says, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Because it represents the prevailing opinion of everybody in that day. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? (laughs) You're telling me the Messiah is, he's a Galilean? Like, this is ridiculous. Unless it isn't. He chooses all of these things. So how is Jesus, who is born of a virgin, perceived by everyone around him? I'm going to use language that, I mean, it's going to feel a little harsh but it would be accurate of the language that they would have used. He would be the bastard son of a, I could say, promiscuous woman, at least in terms of the way she's perceived. They might have said whore. Now, neither Jesus nor Mary are either of those things. I know that. I hope that you know that. But everybody thought that, and not just a whore, but somebody who's nuts. I mean, they've been questioning her sanity. Wait, what? Oh, so the Holy Spirit came upon you in the power of the Most High, and that's how you became pregnant. Well, that's a new one. We've never heard that one before. It's novel. We'll give you that. 
Think of the suffering in that. The odd kid. Oh, by the way, he was an odd kid. Can we agree with that? Because he was perfect. So how do you think that went for him in school? Like when he got to middle school, do you think they had like, what would Jesus do? Like wristbands and paraphernalia, you know, they were just, I don't know, Jesus, what do you think? Like, I think he was the butt of everybody's jokes. That's what I think. And he understands that. Like, if you're that kid, Jesus gets you. That's kind of where I'm going with all of this. He turns 12, right? He, he's bar mitzvahed. He's going to have a bride, but who is the bride of Jesus? Because it's not a, a woman that he marries and then they have a family together like literally every other man in his nation and certainly in his village did. Instead, his bride is us. There is a people who collectively are the bride of Jesus. He gives us his name. He gives us his eternal inheritance. He gives us himself. He sheds his blood for us. He lays down his life. You get the idea? Like we are his bride. But what that means on a practical level is he goes to his parents and he says, don't arrange a marriage for me. What? So now you've got the bastard son of a maybe crazy promiscuous woman. I can't say that word again. It's just, it's bothering me. It's painful, isn't it? Hurts to hear. He's already odd because he's perfect and he doesn't like girls. There are so many on-ramps that the sovereign Lord chose intentionally to suffer that he might identify with you or maybe that you might identify with him. I mean, the writer to the Hebrews is not wrong when he says that we have a savior, a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He goes on and he pours his life into 12 guys. Just like pours his life into 12 guys to be sold to his death by one of them for 30 pieces of silver and abandoned in his moment of greatest need by all the rest of them. He comes initially to his nation, to the Jewish people, and he is proclaiming salvation in himself and the coming of the kingdom of God and so forth. And he is rejected across the board by all of the leadership of the nation. All of these guys, he knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be misrepresented. He knows what it is to be slandered, to be rejected. All of these things that are all on ramps for us. He knows what it is to have these guys constantly badgering him and trying to trick him and trying to embarrass him and trying to humiliate him, trying to discredit him. All of this out of envy and frankly, wickedness. And then they conspire together and they get this big political sham going on by which they create a kangaroo court and they charge him with a crime that he didn't commit. And then they beat him and they torture him and they murder him. And God accepts the murder of his perfect son as the payment for all of the sin, for all of the people who will trust in him. Pretty amazing. This Jesus He's inviting you to himself, you see? How? Not through all of his conquests and triumphs. I mean, sure, that's part of it. On the cross, ironically, he triumphs. But he's inviting you through his suffering. He's going, oh, you've been rejected. I got that one. You know what it's like to be the oddball in school? That would be me. You've experienced rejection on like the most personal of I got that. I've been there. I've done that. You know what it is to have people question you and whisper about you and talk about you and align you and discredit you and 
Jesus is like, look, you guys are right. I, I am God. Got it. It took us eight chapters. I was hoping to do it in three. But in any event, we're eight chapters in. I am God. Right answer. Now, let me tell you about my mission. And I'm just going to give it to you in a nutshell. We'll unpack it the rest of the next eight chapters. But it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Boy, what an understatement. And as a part of that, to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. which is God he willingly surrenders to in love for you and be killed. But that's not how the story ends. And I really want you to see that. Like that's important. It doesn't end on the cross. It doesn't end in death. It doesn't end in the grave. He says, and after three days, rise again. And so the disciples are like, all right, so we get it. You're God. He's like, that's right. Let's talk about my mission. You're like, Tom, could you just sum up the mission? Like, how would you say it? I think I would say it like this. Jesus left the glory of heaven to suffer. Don't miss that word. The depths of earth, all of our darkness, all of our deceitfulness, all of our wickedness, like all of our hurt, all of our pain, all of our sorrows, all of our disappointments, depression, anxiety, like he suffered the depths of earth so that those of us who are trapped in the depths of earth, we are, aren't we? Education doesn't get us out of it. Money doesn't get us out of it. Science and technology. I think it's just getting darker, honestly. Like it sort of reveals more of it. Like we don't have an answer for this. So that those of us who are trapped in the depths of earth might through faith in him in the end, gain the glory of heaven. And in between this day and that day, that guys, by the filling of his spirit, we might know Heaven's great king, like personally. We can open his word and we can, we can hear his voice and we can find him, we can meet with him, we can pray, we can communicate, we can, we can experience his power, his forgiveness, his love, his joy. We can go on his mission and, and do what he wants us to do and see him work in ways that we go, yeah, that, that's not me, that's for sure not me. Like, that's him. And know that we have purpose and life and meaning and all of these things. He's like, look, I offer you abundant life now and eternal life in the next life. And Mark shows us this today in a really creative way that's going to take a little explanation. So put the thinking cap on and stay with me if you would. In Mark chapter nine, which is where we're at, beginning in verse two, we pick it up and Mark says this, he says, after six days, so six days after Jesus has this conversation where his disciples go, we get it, you're God. And he says, that's right. And I left heaven to come to earth and to suffer that in the end I might give you heaven. I came to give you what I have and to give you myself now. Okay, six days after that conversation, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his three foremost disciples, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And then we read that Jesus was transfigured or to transformed before them. And in Matthew's account of this, so Matthew has this story, Mark has this story, and Luke has this story, and they each have pieces that are unique to their account. So in Matthew's account of this, Matthew tells us that in this moment, Jesus' face, which, you know, previously looked just like my face or your face or their faces, not I mean different features, but it wasn't glowing, all of a sudden shone like the sun in the sky. I, I don't know if you've ever, you know, tried to look at the sun. I, I highly would tell you not to do that. Like, I do not recommend it, okay? It is absolutely blinding. It's actually bad for your vision. Even with sunglasses on, it's a terrible idea. You can't stare at the sun in the sky 
without damaging your eyes because it's so bright. Matthew's like, I don't know, I just got one way to describe it. Like his face shone like the sun in the sky and his clothes, which previously looked like our clothes, except different style, praise Jesus, became radiant. These inanimate objects that are just on him began to radiate light. They became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And you're like, you know, what is going on here? Like, I mean, what's happening on this mount of the transfiguration in front of these guys? I think what's happening is that God is giving to these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, a tiny little glimpse of the great glory of Christ that he left behind in heaven to enter into the depths of the earth for them and for me and for you. To suffer those depths that we might be delivered from them. That we might have that kind of glory. And then Mark continues. It's like there's more to the story. He says, and there appeared to them Elijah, who, by the way, lived like seven to 800 years before Jesus was born. And Moses, who lived like 1,200 plus years before Jesus was born. Okay, suddenly these two titanic characters from the Old Testament of the Bible appeared. And they were talking with Jesus. And the question is, well, what are they talking about? And Mark, frustratingly, doesn't tell us. But Luke is like, let me help with this. I got this one. Here's what they're talking about. They're talking about how it is that Jesus' suffering and death is just not going to end there in the grave. But instead, it's going to end in resurrection and in glory. And not just for Jesus, but for me. And for you, and so what I think Jesus or what God is doing here is he's giving these disciples a glimpse of the glory that Jesus left behind to enter into the depths of earth so that through faith in him, we might know that glory and in between so that we might know him. And you're like, okay, but how are these guys supposed to get all that out of this? And the answer is they're not. They're not. They can't get that out of this. But they'll get it later. After the glory, after the cross, after the burial, after the resurrection, when these guys have the opportunity to take the story of the crucifixion and then compare it to this story that they're experiencing here and that we're studying today, when they're able to do that, all right, well, then all of a sudden it starts to make sense to them and they're able to get that lesson out of this. But between then and now, They don't understand this at all. In fact, Peter here just steps right in it. In verse 5, it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. And look, it is good that they're there, because later when they can compare it to the crucifixion, they'll understand what this is. So it's good that they're there, but not for the reason that he assumes. And so he says, let us make three tents or or tabernacles. You know, one one for you, Jesus, we'll, we'll put you in the middle. And one for Moses and and one for Elijah, as if all of them are somehow on level footing. But they're not. And Mark, who almost certainly got his material for this gospel from Peter. A lot of people have referred to Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel. Mark tells us that Peter did not know what to say, for, for they were all terrified. And look... I mean, you can understand why they would be terrified. This is super weird, isn't it? I mean, I'm with Jesus, and all of a sudden his face is shining like the sun. I can't even look at him. His clothes are radiating. Oh, wait a minute. You're Moses? How you doing? I'm Pete. You know, good to meet you. And you're Elijah. Heard a lot about you. Studied you all my life. Super cool how you called fire down from heaven. That was a good one. You know, like, 
I mean, this is odd. But when it comes to the Bible, I expect odd. I mean, I've talked about this in the past, but if you gave me a Bible, in, for example, in which Jesus is claiming to be God, and you're claiming that Jesus is God, and you handed me the Bible, and I read the account of his life, and it was just kind of like reading the account of a normal guy's life, I'd be like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm expecting weird, unusual, supernatural. And these guys are terrified. They're like, they're going, you know, hey, those gummies that Judas gave us before we came up, like... Those from Colorado, like, what is this? You know, like, what's happening here? This is, this is really something. Yeah, and so Peter's like, I don't know. I, I think we should just make tabernacles. You know, well, Jesus will put you in the middle. Elijah, you're going to go there. Moses will put you there. And God the Father is like, no, I'm going to speak into this. I'm going to correct that. It says, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Notice what it says. It said to them, this, meaning Jesus, not, not Elijah, not Moses, Jesus, not anyone else. Jesus is my beloved son. And so then here's what you are to do with Jesus, who is the beloved son of God. Jesus is God. What, what, do, you, what do you do with God? It's like he's like, let me tell you. He says, listen to him. Just want to stop there for a minute. Do you do that? Because it kind of makes sense. I mean, as you work it through logically, you go, probably I ought to do that. You know, like, I mean, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has designed everything. He knows everything about the physics of this world because he's the author of it. He knows everything about everything in this world. He knows everything about you. He created you. Like he's got the owner's manual on how everything in the world at least ought to work. And he's like, come on, guys, like, listen to me and watch what happens. Jesus in Matthew's gospel gives the greatest sermon ever. Like non-Christians agree on this. The most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. How does he get to the end? He gets to the very end and here's how he closes. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and what? Thinks about it, you know, takes it under advisement. I don't know, decides what parts they like. And that anyone who hears these words of mine and does what they say, All right, well, that person will be like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock, he says. And then when the storms of life come, he goes, you know, the rain fell and the the waters, the flood waters rose and the wind came and they beat against that house. What is that house? It's the life of the person who's built their life on the word of God. That house stands. But anyone who hears my words and does not do what I say is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floodwaters rose and the wind came and beat against that house and, the, and that house fell because it was not built upon the rock. And here's what's great about Jesus is, you know, it's like he looks down from heaven and all of our houses are on the ground. And instead of going, well, I told you so, he comes down to us. And he says, let me help you. But we're going to build this, not here. We're going to build this on me. Are you good with that? If you're good with that, i got forgiveness for the falls. <laughs> and I'll help you build a life that sustains the storms. It's different. God the Father steps in. Peter's like tripping over himself because he's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. And I mean, you can't really blame the man. He's trying to say something that would be honoring, and it, he ends up not doing that. And God's like, I'm going to correct this, and, and here's the deal. This is my beloved son, Jesus. 
Listen to him. And then the sermon's over. The whole experience is over. It says, and then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only in his face and his clothing back to normal. Not shining, not radiating. Changed. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them, don't miss this, to tell no one about what they had just seen until when? Until the Son of Man, that's Jesus, had what? Suffered the death on the cross, been buried, laid in the tomb for three days, and then had risen from the dead. That is to say, until they could take this story that we just talked about, and then they could compare it to the story of the crucifixion and go, oh, now it makes sense to me. I I, I think I get it. Because when you look at these two stories together, and I'm just going to give you a few of like a lot of examples you realize that they're mirrored opposites of one another and they op- they oppose each other in such a way as to say, oh my goodness, okay, so Jesus left the glory of heaven to suffer the depths of earth so that those of us trapped in the depths of earth might through faith in him know, gain the glory of heaven. So let's make the comparison. And again, I'm just going to give you, I don't know, like eight. So hopefully you'll be convinced after two, but... It's sort of like the chapters, you know, we're just, we're going with eight. Before his transfiguration, Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. Okay, before his crucifixion, he went down into a valley. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is located, at the base of the Mount of Olives to pray. One is high, one is low. You see the opposite? They're the opposite of each other. On the transfiguration, on that mountain, Jesus is honored. At the crucifixion, he's debased, he's humiliated, he's degraded. At the transfiguration, Jesus is flanked by two of the greatest saints ever that, you know, like, I mean, amazing. Then Peter's like, oh, yeah, we'll do a tabernacle. All of you, Jesus in the middle at the crucifixion. He's in the middle of two other people and they're criminals. And everybody who's passing by doesn't know better, just assumes that he's like one of them. I mean, why else would he be being crucified? At the transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun at his crucifixion. The sun itself was darkened. At the transfiguration, Jesus' clothing shone forth like light on the cross. He was stripped of his clothing and he hung there naked, which as a, I think, significant aside, is another point of identification, is it not? I mean, so much of our regret happens, I'm just going to say it, in nakedness. And Jesus is like, hey, I get you. I hung there like that for you. All invitations, all ways in to the heart of the Savior. At the transfiguration, Jesus revealed his own radiant glory on the cross. He was covered over with our sin and our guilt and our shame and our regret and all of it. At the transfiguration, his closest disciples eagerly eagerly drew near to him. At the cross, they all ran. At the transfiguration, the Father expressed his great pleasure with Jesus on the cross for our sin. He poured out his great wrath. And again, I I mean, I could keep going, but the point is that the cross was not the end of the story for Jesus, and neither was the grave. Resurrection and glory was the end for Jesus. And the reason he came down is to share that glory with us. It's so that we would know him. We could be forgiven. And in the end, yeah, we could share in the glory of our Savior, which is infinite. So it's not like, you know, we got to race to the table, you know, get a piece of the puzzle or a piece of the a piece of the pizza or something, you know, because there's only so many pieces and there's all these people like, hurry up, get a piece, save me. You know, that's, no, it's infinite. 
There's more than enough for everyone always. He's a pretty remarkable savior, guys. So I have one question and then I'm done. Jesus has given himself for you. Will you give yourself to him? And will you do it today? You know, like, I mean, I, I know that, you know, some of you are considering Jesus and you're like, yeah, you know, you're being pushy. I mean, I'm not trying to be pushy. I'm just kind of going, what's holding you back? What, what keeps you from it? Like, and, and how precious is that thing? Because, I mean, Jesus doesn't come to take. He, he comes to give. He's like, yeah, just set that aside. You get me. It's amazing. Will you come to Jesus? Will you give yourself to him? And will you do it today? And, you know, maybe you've never done that. And today is your day right on. We'll be up here after the service. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about that and help lead you into that. Maybe you've done that, but you really haven't given the whole of yourself. You see the difference? It's sort of like, I'm going to give 80% of myself to Jesus. This 20%, that's for me. And he's like, no. You got to know that I'm greater than, than this. You got to know that there's more of me than this. You got to know that there's a point where you got to go all in for me. And maybe that's your move today. Or, you know, maybe you've, you've done this once, but you've walked away for some reason. You know, COVID came and we went online and, you know, it's like everything got weird and, and there's sort of comeback moment, if you will. And the Lord is going, you can always come back. When you come back, I'm not like this. I'm like this. I'm like, come on. I love you. I died for you. I ever live to intercede for you. I offer myself and my spirit to you, my forgiveness, my life, my wisdom to you, my word upon which you can build a life. And it's a rock solid foundation like, come on back. So Jesus has given himself for you. Will you give yourself to Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that as you look down from heaven and you looked upon us, oh Lord, you loved us. God, you came upon us in love. You entered into this world in such a way as to identify with all of these different ways in which we experience life, in which we suffer. I pray that, God, even now your spirit would reveal to us maybe just one or two of those avenues that we've never thought about before. You're not a God who sits upon a lofty throne in comfort and ease only, but instead you're a God who who decided in love to experience the human experience, who knows our weaknesses and our hurts, who knows what it is to be me, to be us. Lord, let us find comfort in that and let us find comfort in the power of that love which came to suffer the depths of the earth that you might conquer them at the expense of your life and by the power of your blood. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you offer freely to all who simply come and say, here I am, take me, forgive me, cleanse me, fill me, and transform me. You've given yourself to us, Lord. And I pray that you would give us faith this morning to return 
and to give ourselves to you. We so win in the deal. We thank you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.